Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we continue our What's Killing You uh, series today, and we're looking today at discontentment. Discontentment. Let me tell you uh, a childhood, brief childhood story. My childhood bedroom, the the fourth bedroom, tucked away on the back left-hand corner of the house, uh, was right up against, had windows right up against the gap between us and our neighbor's house, and as had just become the fashion, there was a massive Leylandi hedge, those, that's those really tall conifers that everyone thought would be a good idea to plant and then regretted it for the next 50 years. But there was one of those big Leylandi hedges between us and the neighbors. And in that hedge lived a pigeon, possibly several pigeons. And one of the enduring memories I have of childhood is being woken up every day by a very loud pigeon cooing so irritatingly that I longed to borrow my friend's air rifle and silence him forever. Yes, sorry, that's the dark side of me that you don't usually see. If you're worried about that, you may like to know that when I did borrow my friend's air rifle, not to shoot the pigeon, but to shoot light bulbs lined up on a hedge, I always missed. (laughs) But perhaps it was that kind of pigeon-irritating experience that caused one blogger I found called Gretchen Rubin to ask the question, what is your pigeon of discontent? And I just loved that phrase, what is your pigeon of discontent? Uh, What's that thing that's kind of cooing away in the background that makes you want to, even a nice, calm, gentle person like me, want to pick up an air rifle uh, and silence it? forever. And uh, Gretchen invited people to write into her blog with their pigeons of discontent, promising to offer solutions to those nagging problems that settle in to roost. I wonder what you would send in in this weather. Is it too hot? Is it too dry for the garden? Is the sermon too long already? I wonder 
actually amongst us here this morning who hasn't, I was going to ask this question, who has expressed some discontent within the last week? And then I thought, no, that's a silly question. Who hasn't expressed some discontent in the last week in an email, uh, in a phone call perhaps to a retail assistant or a telephone helpline service? They get quite a lot of stick, don't they? In a conversation with partners, friends, the different groups to which we belong. Discontent about an event, about a person, about a circumstance, about church, about life in general. I leave you dwelling with that in, in the back of your mind. I'm not going to ask you to own up, except for to yourself and to God. Many years ago, I was privileged to visit Tanzania, uh, one of the poorest countries in the world, and one amongst many uh, enduring memories is that those who possessed literally little or nothing displayed an astounding degree of acceptance with their lot in life. There's a, a really joyful, genuinely Tanzanian woman there was joy. There was uh, the opposite of discontentment, which is contentment. There was acceptance. And on my return home, because of that experience, I noticed even more keenly a society gripped with the desire to turn their much into more, their plenty into surplus, and when frustrated in that aim, to make their discontent known to all. And the intervening years have seen, I think, this disease of discontentment, even as wealth uh, generally has gone up. I know we've lived through many years of austerity that have widened the gap between rich and poor, and that's an issue, a real issue. But in general, as society has gained more and more, so discontent has risen more and more. It's become more prolific. It's become more contagious. It's become more deadly. It's certainly one of those things which is suffocating us as a society, often killing us as a church, and impacting us as individuals yearning for contentment. So what are the symptoms of this disease? Let's do a, a quick health check to see how uh, impacted we are. Here are some that I've gathered together. This is a sort of both a, uh, a synthesis and a summary of stuff that I found by doing some uh, basically Googling, if I'm honest. First one, constant complaining. Yet yeah, we all complain sometimes. And let's be clear, sometimes a feeling, the right kind of feeling of discontent is needed if we're to move on from an unhealthy place. Uh, Thomas Edison said this, discontent is the first necessity of progress. So we need to hear that. Noticing what's wrong in the world can drive us towards challenging injustice. But this discontent of which I speak is different from that. It's personal. It's malingering. It's self-focused. 
It's when complaining becomes your default way of thinking and talking. When that happens, it's time to look at what the real issue is, because usually it's something under the surface. Second uh, symptom, apathy. Do you no longer get excited for activities that you once loved? Do you lack emotion when others are passionate? This impacts upon us, not just in the, in the kind of worldly world, but in the spiritual world too. The stuff that once really inspired us, set us on fire for God, is just not quite there for us anymore. When a sense of utter boredom fills the days and everything seems like a waste of time, maybe discontent is taking hold of your life. And then there's restlessness. Discontentment makes us crave change, even though each change leaves us equally frustrated and unsatisfied. We quickly move on from newly adopted interests, hobbies, travel destinations, as we flit from novelty to novelty, looking for what will bring joy. Discontent searches desperately for something to bring back contentedness, but looks in all the wrong directions. Discontent searches desperately for something to bring back contentedness, but looks in all the wrong directions. And even when we're not busy trying to find the next thing, we feel jittery as we spend each moment thinking ahead and worrying. A discomfort that we don't like to feel, and so it often is hidden behind the distraction behavior, the surface living, which is another feature of our society. Brené Brown uh, sums it up like this. She said, there's also the numbing option. If there's one thing we've mastered, it's how to take the edge off feeling pain and discomfort. We're so good at numbing, eating, drinking, spending, planning, playing online, perfecting, staying really, really busy. She goes on to say that if everyone who only drinks a glass of wine with dinner stopped drinking, there wouldn't be a vineyard left in business. Something for us to think about. Uh, so constant complaining, apathy, restlessness, finally distancing. When infected with discontent, eventually our lack of contentment begins to include loved ones. And we inwardly, and sometimes even openly, criticize their inability to meet our needs or to be what we desire. When directed at self, this contributes to a sort of perfectionism because we're always trying to get to that elusive place. And that causes our world to shatter every time we fall short, which is every time. When these feelings are suppressed, we spiral downwards through anxiety into depression. And when they're not suppressed, they're projected elsewhere. And we arrive at the background noise of brooding anger, which exists within our society, which infects social media 
which drips into conversations and creeps in through the door of churches too. How are you doing? We're not here just to make you feel bad, but we are here to let things come to the surface sometimes so that they can be uh, addressed. That's why we're doing this series on what's killing me, because we we want life, not death, in this place. So how are you doing? What's the diagnosis for you? I saw some research, couldn't find a reliable source, but it's some good statistics to throw out today. I saw some research which suggests the average person moans a staggering 1,300 times a year. That's 53 hours each year, and 8 minutes 46 seconds every day complaining. I don't know where you fit in that scale. Are you above average, below average? Are you a little bit shocked that actually if you're honest today, that might be about where you are? And we might want to say, does this really matter? We've asked that about most of these uh, societal diseases that we've been talking about. Does this matter? Well, yes, it does. And for at least a couple of reasons. Firstly, complaining is really infectious. Have you noticed how hard it is to respond to a negative statement uh, with with a positive one? On Friday, Viv and I were in Debenhams, and Viv was trying on a couple of dresses. So I sat on those nice, comfy seats just outside the dressing room. Some of us will be familiar with those seats. And there was was another guy, slightly lost-looking, already sat in the next one. And I didn't say anything to him at first. And then his wife came out of the changing rooms, wanting to present to him this beautiful outfit that she was wearing. And he just turned to her and said, it's all right. (laughs) (laughs) And she turned and went back in. Probably, I shouldn't, oh yeah, maybe. Storing up some conversation for later on in the day. (laughs) But I turned to him and said, I think you're supposed to say something a bit more positive than that. (laughs) And he said back to me, but it's my lunch hour and I haven't even had anything to eat yet. (laughs) And then they moved on, another guy sat down and I said, isn't it great we've got these comfy chairs to sit on? He said, yeah, but a cup of tea and a biscuit would be nice. So I thought, okay, I'll join in with him. Or or a nice pint of cold beer. He said, yeah, but I've got my car keys in my pocket, so I couldn't drink it anyway. (laughs) At that point, Viv came out looking wonderful. (laughs) Which I told her (laughs) in front of the grumpy old man. And we went on our way, slightly poorer than we started. It's hard to respond to constant negativity with positivity. And in the end, we get dragged in and dragged down. Our brains become hardwired to complain the more we do it. And the accompanying increased flow of cortisol raises blood pressure and actually impacts on our physical health too. 
Just ask this question. Do you enjoy hanging out with people who complain all the time? Discontentment really could be killing you. But the damage goes deeper than that. (laughs) The damage goes deeper than that to impact our spiritual life and witness too. So as an antidote to complaining, I've been rereading Paul's letter to the Philippians. This letter which, though written from prison, is so full of both joy and contentment. And that's in spite of also Paul himself living uh, within a complaining culture. He must have been, otherwise he wouldn't have wasted precious parchment writing about complaining and grumbling in his letter. Paul knows that we underestimate the negative power of complaining and fail to realize that it lies at the heart of salvation. I was actually quite shocked, given that I know this letter, I thought I knew this letter quite well. I was quite shocked to read these verses from chapter 2, where he calls us to continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then immediately associates working out our salvation with fear and trembling with do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Wow, as as Christians, isn't that like at the heart of who we would love to be more like? Blameless and pure? recognized as children of God, Paul connects that with doing everything without grumbling or arguing. I don't think I've ever seen that as a sort of starting point for discipleship before. Job one, yes, obviously, come to Christ. Job two, just leave behind complaining, grumbling, arguing. And the impact of getting this right uh, is that he says, you will shine like stars in the universe as you hold firmly to the word of life. Life, not death. Contentment, not discontentment. Will make us shine like stars in the sky. Would you love to see revival? Richwood, and is joining in, the rest of us nodding. We would, wouldn't we? People flocking to respond to God. Healings, miracles, society transformed along kingdom standards. Justice flowing like a river instead of this current drought that is reflected in the dry brown grass of our lawns at the moment. And remember that stars aren't just those pretty little pinpricks that we see in the darkest night. The closest star is the blazing sun that points out all that is dark and wrong and unjust in our world. Yes, shining like stars is about holding firm to the word of life, but that too flows from doing everything without grumbling or arguing, murmuring or questioning the providence of God. It's what lies behind the the words in that grumbling or argument, murmuring 
questioning the providence, the provision of God. Exchanging discontent for contentment is one of those key distinctives that will set us apart, that will make us shine in our darkly discontented and miserably moaning world. Paul teaches us that contentment is vital to the shininess of our mission. Thinking about that, it's like the difference between the sort of surface gloss of mission, which is immediately revealed as skin deep when we're heard. People come in amongst us because they've seen something happening here and in other churches too. This is about all of us. And they see that shiny outer gloss and then they hear our conversations and they realize it was only skin deep when we're heard to grumble and argue. And that contrasts for Paul with the, with the deep, pure, refined gold as we learn to live in deep contentment. Yes, learn to live in deep contentment. It's something that's possible for us to learn. And learn is a discipleship word. In Philippians 4, verses 10 to 14, Paul says this, I rejoiced that at last you renewed your concern for me. And then he goes on to say some really remarkable words. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be in plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Would it be good to know that secret? <laughs> good, because I'm going to tell you <laughs> what Paul's secret was. Just picked up from this one letter. Does that sound like a good place to live? Shooing off the pigeons of discontent? not waiting for good circumstances. That's what we're often doing. We're thinking, well, I'll be content when this situation gets put right, when the next paycheck comes in, when that problem that I'm agonizing over gets sorted. But we don't have to wait for those circumstances to change, bringing momentary contentment. But we can learn to abide in who God is and how we live as his children. With no promise of plenty to lure us back into the consumerism that Andy was talking about last week. But an invitation to live at peace with self, neighbor, creation, and God. So how did Paul learn to live in this way? Three things. Firstly, trust in God's long-term purposes. Trust in God, fairly obvious, but brackets long-term Back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The old mastermind thing of I've started, so I'll finish. 
Sometimes I pray with complaint rather than joy because the situation I'm praying for seems to move so slowly. The person for whom I'm praying seems to take one step forward and then three steps back. And it's hard not to start your prayer with desperation, with complaint, or even to give up praying. Paul prays with joy because he's confident that even if things aren't yet how he or God would want them to be, he knows that once God has started something, once God has started with someone, he will carry on his work to completion right the way through to the end of time itself. And that means that he hasn't given up on you or that for which you pray. It means that even the things that appear to have gone wrong, even the things that have gone wrong, let's be honest, can and are being used by God. Paul's imprisonment addressed in this letter when he was actually trying to travel the world with the good news of Jesus doesn't lead him to complain or despair. Instead, he sees God's long-term purposes. He notices that what has, he says this, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel because suddenly everyone in the prison knows why he's there and even the local Christians hearing that he's in prison and still sharing the gospel become more confident, not less confident, in sharing their faith. This trust enables him to put trust in God first in the whole of life. And there's no limit to this trust. It enables him to let go of competition and comparison and rivalry that Johnny's going to be speaking on tonight. He comments that some are preaching out of envy and guilt and some are preaching out of love. Uh, but he said it doesn't matter. Christ is preached. That's all that really matters. I'm trusting God to be at work through the preaching Trust even goes far enough to enable him to proclaim that it doesn't matter whether he lives or dies. He says in chapter 1, verse 20, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's how far his trust in the long-term work of God goes. Now, don't panic if that feels like a stretch for you, where you are at the moment, facing small issues that get to you, or even big life and death issues that get to you too. Paul didn't start there. He started small. He started with an encounter with God on the road. He started with trusting that a guy called Ananias, who prayed for his sight to be restored, had been sent by God. He agreed to be baptized, he started preaching the gospel and at each step along the way through uh, uh, beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks, he learned that God had been with him at every step of the way. And this letter is written towards the end of his life, maybe just a couple of years before he died. And he's learnt this lesson and built this lesson about the long-term trust in God such that he can finish with the words that Phil read to us this morning. And my God will meet all your needs according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. 
Secret one, trust in the long-term purposes of God. Secret two, put other people first. This letter is famous not only for its joy, which runs right through it, but for its celebration of humility. Chapter 2, that earliest uh, hymn of the Christian church, uh, announcing the Jesus who became uh, the least so that God might raise him to the highest place. Humbling himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. And all prefaced with this exhortation, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's part of his secret of living with contentment because there's nothing more powerful for shooing off the pigeons of discontent than to switch our focus from our own wants and needs to the needs of others. It doesn't mean that your needs don't matter, but sometimes it's about where the focus is. We can then find ourselves with the sort of love, oneness of spirit and mind that will cause our witness to shine more brightly as our focus turns to those most in need. That's what Jesus did. And in turn, that's what Paul modeled. Chapter 2, verse 17. I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. And I want all of you to share the joy of living that sort of life, he says. And finally... Paul learned to live in contentment by practicing gratitude. Trusting in the long-term purposes of God. Putting others above himself. Thirdly, practicing gratitude. Thankfulness is like a peregrine falcon to our pigeons of discontent. It's a good local image uh, as a building next door often, whichever way it is, has a peregrine falcon overhead. So although it's surprising to find such contentment in this prison letter, the surprise diminishes when we find that Paul practiced gratitude. We can't manufacture joy, peace, or contentment. Uh, I've tried it. You may have, you may be. You can't manufacture joy, peace, and contentment. But we can choose to practice gratitude. And the fruit of that will be contentment marked with joy and peace. Some of you will already be hearing in those collection of words something of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And thankfulness and prayer belong together. Paul's prayers for the church didn't begin with complaints or despair. It began with thanksgiving. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you in my all my prayers for all of you I always pray with joy and then that beautiful passage in chapter 4 verse 4 following where rejoicing thanksgiving peace prayer all get bound up together rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And that sounds like contentment to me. How could you build more thankfulness in your life? You could keep a journal of thankfulness. Some people put a little note in a cookie jar every day. You could put a note in, take a cookie out. Make it a celebration. <laughs> you like that idea, don't you? You could write letters of thankfulness to people that have impacted your life. Uh, Gareth Southgate has become a bit of a national hero, hasn't he? One of the, the bits I've only heard once on the news is that he plans to spend this week writing, handwriting letters to everyone who's been involved in the England camp over the last few weeks because he says he understands that actually receiving a letter has such tremendous impact. So that's what he's going to be doing as soon as he gets back from Russia this week. He possibly doesn't know, as he tries to bless others, that the psychological evidence is that the letter writer also receives a benefit in terms of improved mental health and deeper contentment. So write some letters. And finish your day on your own or with another or as a family with this question on your lips and in your hearts and share the answers for what today am I most thankful? It's a great way to end the day and to set you up to face the next day with the possibility of contentment. If discontent is killing us, then contentment will bring us life and that life will overflow to others. Bruce Van Horn says, attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? And my hope is that more and more an attitude of contentment with peace and joy and thanksgiving might flourish amongst us and overflow through us to the lives of those around us. Paul says that will be like stars shining on the darkest of nights. Shall we stand together? And I just want to lead us in uh, prayer. Just take a moment between you and God to listen to what's in your heart. To ask that question, if, if attitudes are contagious, is yours worth catching? And maybe even to choose this moment to say, uh, I'd like to do things differently. I'd like to be different.
and to find that the answer to that doesn't lie in longing for circumstances to change or other people to change or even you to change in the first instance but to look at how God has walked with you through each step of your life and say I'm trusting you in the long run to complete the work that you've started in me and in those around me I'm going to shift my focus from me and my wants and needs to the much often more significant needs of those around. You know, I came in to church this morning maybe just feeling a little bit anxious about preaching and as I walked up the drive I saw a homeless person sleeping in the garden. There are greater needs. And there are different needs. And even if the need you face this morning is literally a life and death need, then even as you embrace God's help for you in that need, you will be blessed by reaching out to others too. And choose to practice thankfulness. gratitude that will transform your lives and will cause us as a church to shine like stars in the universe. Lord, come and do that work in us, we pray. We choose life. We choose life, not death. And we receive that life from you.